Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode, I interview my guest Cabral, who is an ER doctor living in the Western United States, who identifies himself as a Marxist, a dissident, and a concerned citizen. He's passionate about Medicare for All and healthcare reform. He's also an outspoken critic of U.S. foreign and domestic policy, and he considers himself a revolutionary who would like to overthrow capitalism. I'm with you, brother. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. Living in the Western United States. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Necessary Illusions. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. So you're an expert, I would say, on uh, U.S. and Cuba relations. Um, your father was a was a Cuban, correct? Yeah, my dad was uh, born in Havana, and then I, I spent a, a semester studying Latin American uh, political movements in in Havana. So the U.S. has a very dicey history. Um, Noam Chomsky has called it uh, basically the most terrorist uh, targeted country um, in the hemisphere or possibly the world because of uh, the United States' foreign policy agenda. This at the same time when 73% of American citizens would like to see uh, normalized relations between the U.S. and Cuba. So what's going on in the last 50 years? Why, uh, why the... Why the uh, problems with the U.S. and Cuba? I mean, Cuba is a very peaceful country, has a great healthcare system, beautiful beaches, uh, great climate, great people. What's what's the problem? Yeah, so it goes back really more like a hundred years when Cuba got its uh, independence from Spain. Uh, the U.S. Uh, through the it's through the Platt Amendment, which basically gave uh, the United States the right to. Uh, write the Cuban constitution, more or less. Uh, so the Cuban economy was set up to really kind of extract um, all of the economic output of Cuba and and, and kind of pipeline it into the U.S. Um, so it really functioned as a puppet uh, of, of, the, of the United States uh, regime for... That's, that's colonialism, right? I mean, it's, uh, the U.S. Absolutely. is kind of treating it like a... Like a colony and extracting wealth, and 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 everyone everyone was uh, at the at the at the detriment of the Cuban citizens, right? Absolutely, and it was done in kind of a cloak and dagger sort of way, where they had elections, but there was never there was never anybody that ever changed that that status quo. Um, so you know, it, it it really ended with this um, with this military military dictatorship under uh, Fulgencio Batista. Um, who very much functioned as a U.S. puppet and as well as uh, really worked for the uh, organized crime um, within the U.S., um, where he 
directly benefited from the casinos and and, and the the kind of mafiosos who operated out of Havana, uh, really to the extent that he was personally, uh, he and his family was given a percentage of like slot machine uh, earnings uh, just directly to him from from these uh, you know organized crime syndicates uh, that operated uh, between Havana, Chicago, and Las uh, Las Vegas. I think I saw, I was reading up some, some Cuban history because I knew I was bringing you on the podcast and we had discussed it in the pre-call. I think, uh, this, this, uh, this autocrat, um, changed the terms in the constitution illegally and not through process of law and made his term, uh, six years from whatever it was, three or four years. And there was a big revolt. And then not long after, um, Castro and I guess the leftist movement, um, you know, capitalized to, to, you know, uh, capitalize, I guess, on that dissidence and that, that the, the people that were in opposition to the, to the authoritarian puppet regime in Cuba, uh, does that sound <laughs> is, is an oversimplified, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, yes, that, that's very much what happened. You had this very, um, unsettled population. Um, you know, people were very, uh, very poor in, in Cuba at the time. Uh, it was, the economy was, was driven by a, the tourism industry in Havana, which was, casinos and live sex shows and prostitution um and it, and it was a lot of like wealthy western tourists who would come and then in the countryside it was sugar um and so that was a very seasonal um industry where you have people living in like grass huts that had no health care no no access to education um who are very dependent on the sugar season and these contracts that the u.s really dictated um and they would decide kind of season by season whether they wanted sugar from cuba so some years they would have work and other years they wouldn't um so you had this very unsettled population um you had a lot of organizing kind of within the, all of the urban centers and a very uh uh revolutionary sympathetic um uh campesinos like the farmers so then when you had uh fidel castro and che guevara and and his uh, july 26th movement land on the eastern side of the country um it was like a wildfire where that there was just so much um this is 1953 or 56? 1954 1954 okay. no 1959 was when they landed in um eastern cuba the, there was a you know there was some stuff before that uh fidel castro had uh Attacked He'd been exiled, I believe, right? There was yeah, a he failed was, he was coup. Ex- exiled to Mexico. He was exiled. Uh, and actually, I have 1956 Castro returns, uh, aided by Che Guerrera and wages guerrilla war. I guess that's when it began, at least if it, this is according to uh, Latin America's studies uh, website I was looking at earlier today. Yeah. It looks like this dates, this colonialism, though, dates back to 1818 with the Spanish, um, when the Spanish first occupied uh, Cuba. And then I wanted to talk about this too. Um, the United States has been in possession of Guantanamo Bay since 1912. So this is after um, Cuba won its independence. I think there was three or four um, independence movements and in, in civil wars or, I guess, revolutionary wars uh, when the Cubans wanted to become independent from Spain. But obviously the United States, once they were finally freed from the rule of Spain, obviously the U.S. had a, a pretty had an agenda and they wanted to keep, you know, Cuba within their sphere of influence. And I wrote here in 1901, the Platt Amendment, that was after the Spanish-American uh, War, that the U.S. would use military intervention to defend uh, to defend their uh, U.S. interests in Cuba. So, and I read here that, I guess the Marines, uh, I forget what date it was, but I wrote down some Marines here, uh, went to... Uh, 
went to occupy Cuba to defend U.S. property. Nothing here yeah. about democracy. Nothing here about uh, the people of Cuba. They were uh, intervening to defend U.S. economic interests and Absolutely. to defend property. <laughs> so, Absolutely, and and Guantan- Guantanamo in particular, like, is a, is a great example of how the U.S. really kind of dictated what uh, what was done in Cuba. They gave themselves. A lease, uh, I believe it was either a hundred. It was either hundred year lease, I think, something like that. It was like a. It's a dollar lease that that they paid for Guantanamo. That's nice. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think ultimately they ended up paying a little bit more, but uh, that was what that was the deal that they gave themselves was to lease Guantanamo from Cuba for a dollar, and now they operate. Yeah, uh, their their torture camp in right. a country that they accuse of human rights violations. And that's the whole point of having Guantanamo Bay there to have a prison that operates outside of U.S. law, outside of U.S. jurisdiction. Uh, the reason they would want a jail or a prison to operate outside of U.S. Juris- jurisdiction would be uh, if they were operating a torture chamber on U.S. soil, there would be um, human rights uh, violations and court cases and social workers and the U.N. would be involved. But because this is a military base uh, and they are oper- operating outside of U.S. Uh, legal system, that's the whole reason they like, it's a torture chamber um, basically in principle without even having to investigate it. There'd be no other reason to keep a, uh, a torture chamber or to keep a jail or prison, you know, on, on Cuba other than to, you know, uh, do illegal things. <laughs> Otherwise they could just put it essentially Certainly. on any of any of the 50 States. Um, yeah. But it's I'm so really... close to the U S you would have no reason to have, uh, uh, um, you know, a jail, Anywhere in Florida, of the U.S. Unless sure. you're using it for, you know, extra legal, right? Um, extra legal, right? Yeah, I like the quotes um, there. Yeah. What do you think the What do you think the people of Cuba think about Guantanamo Bay? I mean, that, the, that could the be Cuba a valuable have, port, have mixed, right? That could be a very valuable opinions about it. It's, it. They get frustrated because the the Cuban government frequently blames the U.S. for a lot of things, which I think is very legitimate. Uh, but I, I think. You know, the the embargo is working and that it was designed to really kind of fatigue the Cuban people and, and make them make them very miserable and, and to really kind of cut off resources for them to where they start to kind of take it out on, on their government. So there are a lot of Cubans who, you know, who are upset with their government, rightfully and wrongfully. You know, the Cuban government isn't perfect. It, it has made mistakes, but I certainly don't think it's, it's my place as an American whose country is has the boot on the neck of theirs. Uh, to be, you know, critiquing their government with much sharpness. But I, I think if you were to poll the Cuban people and ask what they think about Guantanamo, they would want it back. I think that they, uh, you know, they're a very educated population. They're they're very aware of these issues and they find Guantanamo reprehensible. And it could be a very valuable port. I mean, it's cutting off a part of the a good good chunk of the island from development economic and whatever. Absolutely. Um, and there's, you know, a couple of things I want to speak to on that. The first being that, you know, ships that port in Cuba because of our embargo are not able to port in the U.S., I believe, for six months. So that's part of how the embargo works. People say, you know, oh, well, they can't trade with the U.S., but they could trade with everyone else. But that's not true. The embargo really kind of forces people to trade with the U.S. or with Cuba. And as you can imagine, most most of these shipping companies, whatever, choose the U.S. because it has more economic value to them. So that's kind of the first thing I want to say about, about ports and naval bases. Uh, the second one is, you know, one of the biggest 
naval bases in the country. Uh, it, it historically was just outside of Havana, and uh, Cuba has converted that uh, naval base into a medical school, one of the biggest medical schools in the world, where they train thousands and thousands of of of, of low income students from all over the world, from Palestine, from Yemen, from Syria, from all over Africa, from all over South America, from Central America, the Caribbean, even from the U.S. I have personal friends who study medicine over there for free at the invitation of the Cuban government. And so, you know, you look at what the U.S. is doing with its naval bases, which is torturing, uh, you know, people who have never uh, had trial. And you look at Cuba, which is converting its naval bases into medical schools and educating the masses. And I think it's absurd for the U.S. to be accusing this country of human rights violation while it operates its torture camp there. And, you know, I think I've read some stories on the people that are detained in Guantanamo, uh, mostly most of the time without charges. Um, You know, if the United States invades a foreign country, um, whether it's Afghanistan or uh, Iraq um, wherever, whatever countries in the uh, the crosshairs um, of America, uh, if we go in and you know maybe a villager or a, a teenager throws rocks back uh, at the U.S. military, they can be detained, you know, because uh, they're 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 uh, attacking you know U.S. Uh, military personnel, and without charges, they can be detained and placed in a torture chamber, and um, you know for for whatever reason, for uh, untold amount of time, maybe you know. Uh, Years, decades, I've read some of these stories, um, and that's because the U.S. runs the world, so we are defending whatever whatever country uh, we place boots on the ground in, you know, and, and if, if, if villagers and, and people of a, of a certain country don't want us to be there, they're attacking us and not the other way around, which is completely, completely ludicrous. Uh, I want to get to, you mentioned uh, about Cuba and training doctors and healthcare and education, which seems to be uh, a very important uh, agenda for the Cuban um, government there. Um, we can maybe get into the government, but I, I agree with you. I mean, we're both American citizens. Uh, the only government that we can really have any influence over is our own. So it's definitely doesn't make a lot of sense to spend too much time critiquing other governments around the world when we have no power to influence them. But so let's get back to the U.S. government. Over 750 military bases around the world and over 80 countries. Um, and yet the U.S. US healthcare system is uh, a national and international scandal, frankly. Um, some of the most expensive, I think we pay two times more than healthcare for per capita than any other country in the world. Uh, four times as much as Canada for worse outcomes. The U.S. and Cuba on the healthcare ranking scale are very, very similar. And Cuba, I think it's less than 10% um, of our expenditures per capita. I want to say it's 5%, but it might not be. It might be a little bit higher, but it's a fraction uh, of what the U.S. spends on healthcare for about the same outcomes, and all while you know we have this imperial agenda and bases all around the world. So this tiny little island nation with very so, so much less resources and so much less privilege and opportunity, you know, is able to run um, an incredibly um, successful you know healthcare system, and a lot of times aligning with countries of the global south that are attacked 
you know, by the United States and their imperial agenda. And it seems like they're always first to send doctors to crises and national natural disasters and all that kind of stuff. And I think that is very that's just that's so awesome. Like they're they're not yeah. deterred. And I think even when the U.S. has disasters, uh, they offer to send doctors here to the states uh, where they're drastically needed, and especially in urban areas um, which do, are falling uh, apart. And yet they the Congress says no every time they say no. Yeah, after Hurricane Katrina, uh, Cuba tried to send 500 doctors and nurses uh, to New Orleans, and the U.S. government said no. Yeah, um, while while people were dying in the streets there, but the Cuban healthcare system is really is really amazing and interesting. You know, they do have uh, their issues in terms of supplies, which I would lar- largely attribute to the embargo. Sure. Uh, but the way that it functions is very efficient, and and it's a model that's been applied now um, through a lot of. Um, the developing world in the global south, um, where you basically it, it functions very similarly to how the fire department functions here in the U.S., where if you live in a neighborhood, you have like your neighborhood fire department. And in Cuba, you have your neighborhood clinics. The doctor usually lives in that clinic. Um, so it's their house on one floor and then, you know, their clinic on another. And, and that's like their primary care office. They're aware of everybody in that neighborhood. They keep track on all of their medical problems, who needs to see them when they do home visits. They, they really it's a very much more holistic view and big emphasis on primary care. Um, they do send uh, doctors abroad, not only to respond to like natural disasters and, and, and things like that, but they stay there. They build hospitals and they stay there and they staff those hospitals with Cuban doctors indefinitely. And that's so a brain drain. That's a brain drain for Cuba. I mean, they're training. It, 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 it would be, except they're training so many doctors that it's not. They are still one of the countries with the highest uh, uh, physicians per capita in the world. And yet they send so many doctors around the world. And they're criticized for this. They're criticized for this because they, quote unquote, only pay their doctors a few thousand dollars a month. But I would argue that the U.S. sends soldiers all over the world to its 750 military bases and uh, you know every more country than more than 750 <laughs> and they pay them a couple thousand dollars a month and yet the the u.s media and the, and the ngo apparatus that, that that is backed by the u.s government often critiques the cuban uh physician international physician brigade as slavery which is so absurd it's just it's so absurd because they say they're not paid adequately, but what do you what do you want them to do? You know what I mean? Like they're they're paid well above average for Cubans, and it, and it, and it gives them it, you know it is it allows them to have a lifestyle that is very much above average in, in Cuba, and so it's just an absurd critique to me that that you would ever criticize this as a as a country that sends bombs and guns and warfare everywhere we we go to be criticizing this country for sending doctors is just insane. So, yeah, it sounds like the U.S. priorities are out of alignment, and it sounds like we're giving hypocrisy a bad name. Yeah. So, and I and I had mentioned uh, 73% of the United States population wants to normalize relations with Cuba. Uh, the 20, 27% that uh, want to maintain these relations, you know, I would I would imagine they're uh, all in a certain uh, group uh, with, you know, Western ties to Western, you know, industry and um, you know, have their have a specific agenda, and it seems like it's you know politically motivated. Um, yeah. for I think reason. there's a fair, there's like a there's a fairly effective propaganda campaign too. But I think I think as people are traveling to Cuba more and kind of learning about it more, uh, that the the, the 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 prop the shell of propaganda is starting to crack, and you're seeing more and more support for 
normalizing relations. So we'll see if that happens. Um, I think at, at this, I think one of the reasons it hasn't is because Florida was considered a quote unquote purple state, and you yeah. had Democrats and Republicans competing for you know the the Cubans in Miami Dade County, um, who who are very who very much represent the right wing of of that country who have left. Um, but at this point, I think Cuba is, I mean, Florida is so strongly in the red camp and it's so strongly Republican that there's really no reason, uh, why the Democrats shouldn't normalize relationship relations with Cuba. Other than that, they are just ineffective and can't really govern and don't seem to respond to popular will, even though, as you said, more than 70% of the country supports, uh, normalizing relations. And I quote this almost every, um, you know, podcast, but, you know, oligarchy is what the Princeton uh, Review said of the U.S. Um, system of government. It's not a democracy. I, I, sometimes I catch myself saying no longer democracy. I mean, was it a democracy when uh, slaves were three, three-fifths, you know, black, uh, you know, blacks from Africa, you know, were enslaved and they counted as three-fifths uh, a person? Uh, or did it, you know, was it a great democracy when uh, we were carrying out genocide, I say, as an American and as a white person, I guess, uh, carrying out genocide against uh, the Native Americans? One of the reasons that uh, the right to bear arms was uh, written into the Constitution, not only we were trying to win revolutionary, win revolutionary war and independence from Britain, but we also had uh, a huge slave population that at any point in time could revolt. And we also had to drive Native Americans out of their lands. So America was a nascent empire, an empire since its inception, and it was founded on guns. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have this um, crazy gun culture here uh, in the United States. I do want to say, too, uh, we had talked about some votes here, UN votes. I looked up one from, I think, 2002. Uh, The U.S. is a very isolated in UN and international votes uh, and uh, a pariah state. Um, where it voted, I believe this was 2002, 176 to 1, uh, 176 countries voted that food was a human right, uh, and the United States was a lone country saying no. And I think uh, you had also mentioned in, in the pre-call that the tide is turning. Um, the more and more people each year support national or normalizing uh, relations with Cuba, even though there's a constant propaganda delusion has been for decades. So I think people are really starting to see through the lies, the propaganda, the misinformation that's presented to them. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and speaking of the UN in terms of the, the votes uh, condemning the, the embargo on Cuba, uh, I believe the most recent one was last year, if I remember correctly. And there were three, no, all, you know, it was unanimous in the embargo with the exception of three, three countries, which is the US, uh, Israel and, and Ukraine. Um, so it tends to be the US and, and the countries that, that are courting the US for uh, either financial or military support, um, but they they don't really they clearly don't really have any ideological um, dog in the fight. But they're they're kind of courting the U.S. Like I said, I think both Israel and Ukraine would completely collapse, implode without uh, U.S. military, political, ideological, and economic support, um, and that's why they are very subservient to uh, U.S. Uh, wealth and power. Absolutely. So um, you had mentioned a little bit about organized crime, uh, the Cuban regime before um, you know Castro took over, and uh, it's it's ties with organized crime, which allows me to mention the drug war, um, and that's definitely um, how the U.S. has been able to gain large amounts of untraceable money. In a previous podcast, uh, the drug war is the best way to get dark money. 
Um, so in a previous podcast, I had mentioned uh, Gary Webb. So I want to bring this up again. Gary Webb, he was a reporter for the San Jose Mercury News. Um, I didn't mention, uh, or I did mention as well, he was later found with uh, two gunshot wounds in the head, and they ruled it a suicide. The coroner said that's very strange that someone would uh, shoot themselves twice uh, in the head uh, during a suicide attempt. But I'm not saying anything. I'm just making mention of it. But it anyways. <laughs> But um, he had real, revealed a, um, a CIA FBI um, ring that was basically trafficking weapons to Nicaragua. Now the U.S. at the time wanted to overthrow the government of Nicaragua, and it was arming the Contras. It was getting the arms from the money. It was uh, gaining in this uh, illegal drug ring where it was shipping arms to Nicaragua and shipping high high grade, very potent. I've read like literary quotes on this stuff and extremely cheap cocaine uh, to, to New York and the F or I'm sorry, not New York, uh, LA and the FBI was um, basically giving it to gang members. I think the Crips or the Bloods or both of them even. And that's just uh, some of the famous ones, but it was very deep, deep ring. Uh, and it was basically, you know, the crack, basically it was the crack epidemic that had started uh, that, that Webb had discussed here and, and the ties to now, I guess, South American terror states. Um, but basically this, this kind of ring went on for years, destroyed urban communities in the United States, and all with the agenda of, again, over, overthrowing a, you know, a leftist-leaning uh, South American government. And that's not the only one. I, I was starting to look through some U.S. history in Latin America uh, in preparation for this podcast, and I just did not have enough time. It's not very good. Um, one of the recent things I was reading about is the uh, Pinochet um, dictatorship. I believe that was Chile. Is that correct? Uh, 1975, yeah. Yeah. So I got Argentina, Bolivia on here. About 9-11, which is, it, it's really, it's really ironic. The first 9-11, right? This is yeah. the first 9-11. It's sure. funny that like Americans don't know about it, right? But like, so imagine our country being tacked on 9-11 and then also them overthrowing our president and replacing it with a puppet regime. And that's what we did to Chile in 1975. But we don't know that. Americans don't know that. If you ask somebody on the street, they have no idea. And it's, it is, it's, it's just outrageous and you had guatemala in 1954 which is kind of the og the original and that was uh che Guevara was actually in guatemala at the time and i think that really kind of informed his um approach to the cuban revolution and and fidel castro's as well because they had just seen um you know uh what was his name oh my gosh uh, 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 brain fart right now um president of guatemala at the time was overthrown um once he started doing land reform and and and, and started to nationalize industries um, and they kind of use, they kind of exploited liberal democracy in, in Guatemala to oust him. Um, and so I, I, the, the, one of the arguments in terms of why, uh, you know, Fidel Castro and, and his revolutionary government was more heavy handed than that was because they learned from what uh, the U.S. government did to Guatemala in 1954. Um, but that certainly didn't stop them from trying to overthrow Castro. Um, you know, they did. Uh, invade Cuba and the Bay of, Bay of Pigs and, uh, you know, attempted to uh, overthrow, you know, they attempted a counter-revolution, but it, it failed as because the, there was just so much popular support among the Cuban people. And I'd also like to make mention of this. Uh, there was a time in history during the Cuban Missile Crisis that the world had came one word away from nuclear war. We had a psychopath in the office, uh, in, the, in the White House, JFK. Uh, there's a book by Noam Chomsky, Rethinking Camelot. So there's a big um, leftist, uh, you know, 
I guess, conspiracy or whatever. A lot of conspiracies surrounding JFK. But basically, JFK, some some people on the left think that he had some big leftist socialist agenda. And he was killed, assassinated by the deep state before he was able to um, carry out this agenda. Uh, but according to the, the book and Chomsky, who wrote on it, that there's no morsel of truth to this um, whatsoever. Um, he was a very uh, heavy-handed authoritarian, especially at least as it relates to U.S. foreign policy. Um, Chomsky called him, and he would have been, you know, if, if it was carried out by the the Nuremberg Tribunal as a uh, as a war criminal. Uh, it was pretty cut and dry here with with uh, JFK's record in the White House. Um, but he was uh, basically responsible for. Um, carrying out the Cuban Missile Crisis, bringing the world to one word away from nuclear war. So I've read about this a few weeks ago. This all came out after the Soviet Union collapsed and the archives were made um, public, which is one thing I will say about the United States. 30 years, um, we do come out with um, you know some of the classified records, which is a good thing. Not all of them, and just the ones we're allowed to know about. Uh, but it's a good thing that, uh, you know, the classified records come out. Of course, the mainstream media doesn't talk about them at all. They're never publicized, but you can get available. You can get them, um, you know, via, via public information and um, that kind of stuff. But basically, when the Soviet uh, archives opened up after the, after the Soviet Union collapsed, we found out that there was a nuclear submarine uh, in the waters between Florida and Cuba at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was armed with a uh, nuclear uh, missile. Um, the, uh, the the submarine, the Russian submarine, was targeted by a U.S. destroyer, uh, and they were wanting the the submarine to kind of come up. I believe communication between um, the submarine and Moscow was taken out. Uh, the the crew on the submarine thought that nuclear war had begun. Uh, they did not have to get approval from Moscow to launch a nuclear missile uh, at the United States uh, or anything that attacked them um, while they were on their duty or while they were, you know, carrying out their mission. Um, but it was targeted by a U.S. destroyer. Um, they needed to, they, they needed to uh, decide on whether to uh, mount a, a counterattack and the commanders of the submarine, if all three of them said um, that, yes, we need to fire this nuclear missile at the United States in retaliation, the world would have changed for the worse, possibly leading to nuclear annihilation. And we might not even be here talking about it right now. Two of those commanders on the submarine said yes to fire the nuclear missile at the United States. One, hopefully, <laughs> one luckily, I should say, for us, cool customer apparently, um, said no. And he was, you know, uh, you know, praised and awarded medals and all, all kinds of stuff. But uh, the, the world would have been a much different place um, if that, uh, if he said yes and not no. And I could only imagine what the U.S. Uh, response would have been if it was struck by a nuclear missile by a Russian submarine that day. Uh, I would imagine uh, the entire nuclear arsenal would have been launched at Russia. And as soon as Russia found that out, they probably would have launched their entire nuclear arsenal at the United States. So again, I don't think we would be here today to discuss about it. Uh, I don't know if nuclear policy has changed that much um, since we found this information out. Uh, it does appear that the world is run by psychopaths. Uh, the United States has actually signed the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty, um, yet we don't take it seriously. 
We have uh, over 5,000 nukes. Russia has even more nukes. It only takes, as I've done some research, somewhere between like 10 and 100 nukes to completely end the possibility of life uh, on the planet Earth for humanity. Uh, so it doesn't really appear to be any reason to have 5,000 nukes other than mutually assured destruction. So, Cabral, what do you think about all this? Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree with that. I think we're being incredibly reckless um, with our nuclear proliferation. I think um, you look at, I mean, I think that there, there's just a point where it becomes absurd. Like you said, you know, there's only, there's only a certain number of nukes that that really, there's pretty, you know, low ceiling in terms of, a nuclear holocaust um and so you know when that ceiling is between 10 and 100 and we have upwards of 5000 it's just it's just completely absurd and i mean i would argue that you know even even meeting that ceiling is 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 reckless and not only a waste of money but like a tragedy uh, to even be to even be considering spending our country's wealth on that um but certainly reckless and grifting and, and supporting an industry that is that is almost encouraging um the proliferation of 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 war and and nuclear weapons and and you know in the context of a place like ukraine right now where there's been discussion of tactical tactical nuclear weapons um and the idea of using like small small nukes or something like that is just so incredibly reckless and and just frankly absurd that that it's even it may not be officially on the table, but you have, you know, quote unquote, serious people who are treated seriously by the media um, who talk about it and, and people who have influence and people who have who have power that are that are talking about these things. So can we ever live in a world without nuclear missiles, nuclear bombs? I mean, what if we what if we got rid of uh, the entire nuclear arsenal tomorrow? What do you think would happen if the United States did that? I think it'd be a much safer place if we got rid of it tomorrow, don't you? I agree. I don't think you know. I, I think that that should have been the target and the goal after um, you know after I mean really after World War Two, but it's, particularly after the fall of uh, of the Soviet Union, uh, you know. And you know what we did after the fall of the Soviet Union? You know what one of our first military acts was? The invasion of Panama. So yeah. once uh, once um, Russia fell, there was no longer that military deterrent. The United States now had a freer hand to terrorize the world and carry out its military agenda in order for strategic and economic you know, in order to carry out, you know, or to gain strategic or political or economic, uh, you know, power, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, did you watch the Oppenheimer film? I haven't yet. It's, uh, I, I, I would like to, you know, it's not, I, I've got, I don't know. I mean, I haven't watched it, so I, I can't necessarily critique it without having watched it, but from my understanding and, and just from the historical context, I'm, I, I've got my critiques of it, but, yeah. um, no, I haven't, I haven't watched it yet. It's a little bit long for, for me. Let's get into this. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not bad. It's it's pretty decent. I had a whole yeah. podcast where we mainly discussed nuclear war, so I don't want to go that route. But um, I did I did mention JFK, uh, rethinking Camelot, a book by uh, Chomsky, and this is at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis that we had mentioned yeah. the tensions. So let's get into it uh, from a conspiracy theorist point of view. Who killed JFK? I mean, I would not be surprised if the CIA had a hand in killing uh, JFK. If you look at um, you know the there is certainly 
a motive. And if you look at the players involved, uh, it does kind of fit that it would be them. Um, you know, in terms of Lee Harvey Oswald, you have a guy who was stationed at a CIA base while he was in the Marines. He learned Russian while he was there. And uh, after being discharged, went to live in the Soviet Union for some time. Um, came back to the U.S. without any red flags being waved, which is insane at the height of the Cold War for someone who was who had defected to the Soviet Union to come back without any kind of red tape or anything. Um, and then for him to be the one that killed JFK, and then for him to be killed by Jack Ruby, uh, who had Jack Ruby had a lot of um, mafia connections, including connections in Cuba, and the CIA at the time was working with the mafia uh, to try to assassinate Fidel Castro, um, as well as, you know, uh, other wor world world leaders and, and you know, undesirables um, in, in the global south. Not to mention um, the Dolish brothers, who were really kind of the, 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 the fathers of the CIA. Um, was it Alan Dulles or I can't remember? The, I think it was Alan Dulles that was uh, the, the founder and the, the head of the CIA who J JFK had fired uh, just previously to that. So you have the motive, you have the players. I certainly... You know, I, I, I'm not, this isn't my, this isn't the issue that, the hill that I will die on, but I would certainly <laughs> not be surprised if the CIA were involved. I certainly don't think that JFK was some kind of devoted leftist and that that was the, the motive. I think it would be more personal. He did have a kind of a vendetta against the CIA and against uh, the Dulles brothers, and he wanted to shrink uh, the CIA's power and influence. So I would think that it would be more that rather than some kind of like, you know, secret communist you know, worldview or something that he had. That's interesting too. I think uh, the two airports in DC, I think one's Dulles, the other one's JFK. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That is ironic. <laughs> well, JFK is in New York, but yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I know that there's close. one They're Dulles really for sure. Um, yeah. There's Dull Dulles is uh, DC and then JFK yeah. is New York city. Okay. Okay. Well, speaking of JFK and conspiracy theories, I really don't like to, go too deep into the weeds because I feel like, um, you know, people don't take you too seriously when you're speculating on conspiracy theories. And it seems like JFK is kind of the mother of all conspiracy theories. What I do think though, is if, if it wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald, I think it was the aliens. So that's my second guess. I think it's likely that, uh, Harvey Oswald was a lone gunman, but I think maybe he was put up to it by the aliens, the UFOs. So what of the distraction? What of the UFO revelations? What about the public consciousness? Everyone seems to be obsessed. I'm just kidding about the JFK stuff, by the way. Oh, Everyone man. seems to be obsessed with UFOs as of late. Is it a distraction? Is it a, uh, a dog and pony show while uh, you know something's going on behind the scenes that they don't want us to know? I mean, in regards to the JFK thing, I would not be surprised if every president since him was like a secret shape-shifting lizard person. So <laughs> I can't say, let's just yeah. not count it out is all I'm saying. Um, let's go, let's, let's no, transition. I, I, let's I go full-scale conspiracy theory. We got, we got <laughs> the next hour. Let's, you know, <laughs> birds aren't real. I mean, true uh, yeah, or false. I mean, uh, they could also be shape-shifters. No, um. No, I mean this 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 most recent thing. It's 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 interesting. I really haven't like bought in super super bought into it. Just I feel like extraordinary extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and there's been people that have you know claimed this stuff before. And yeah, he's a whistleblower and blah 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 blah. It, it's an it's an interesting it's an interesting thing. I, I'm still not sold on it. Um, you know, I think I think the the prospect of you know intelligent life is like outside of 
the planet Earth is is fascinating and it would really kind of change what it means to be human. So like philosophically speaking, very interesting, but I haven't bought in yet. I need to see more before before I really kind of take that stance. But I will say it does it does potentially offer some credibility uh, to Posada, who was a uh, Argentinian uh, Trotskyist who basically claimed we don't need to be, you know, organizing for communism on Earth because the aliens for them to be intelligent enough to come to Earth will have, must have already basically had fully automated luxury gay space communism already so that they would just bring it to us. So, I mean, that would certainly make our job easier. This, this, this uh, communist thought, it's next level stuff. It's just, uh, you know, it's so beneath the, uh, the capitalists. They can't even figure it out, can they? Yeah. So, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, that was his big thing. You know, uh, it would be the biggest claim, biggest revelation possibly in, in human history if, uh, you know, alien life existed and visited us. So, uh, that's the same kind of thing his argument was. I need to see the evidence and, you know, maybe, maybe then if we have anything more than grainy videos, but, uh, yeah. until then, that's kind of where I am. I'm a skeptic on, on that I'm stuff. Sorry. You did, you did mention whistleblowers, uh, necessary illusions. Uh, Barack Obama is no friend of necessary illusions. The Obama administration uh, prosecuted more whistleblowers than any other presidential administration in history. Uh, and not to mention his uh, drone war campaigns, uh, his assassination campaigns, essentially, uh, won him a Nobel Prize. So, you know, good, good for him, huh? Yeah, well, his, his administration was such a bait and switch. I mean, I was, I was pretty young at the time. It was the first election that I could vote in. And I really believed the campaign rhetoric. Rhetoric. I the was, hope you know, changey stuff. You believed I, in it. Yeah. I mean, wow. Like, not like a single thing he said was true. I mean, I was, no. I was a well, healthcare. I mean, I was pretty young, but I was still a healthcare guy. And he promised us universal healthcare. And you know, to his credit, he did healthcare, but it was a very corporate. I would, I would have watered down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah the one thing Chomsky wrote on this, he knew it right from the get go. Um, if you went to the Obama, I was pretty new into politics too. I think I was radicalized right around the same time. Uh, I was radicalized. One of the first things, at least, was the Occupy Wall Street when um, Bush and then later Obama bailed out the banks, um, the, the banks that were too big to fail. Uh, they, of course, bailed them out with billions of dollars, maybe even trillions of dollars of uh, taxpayer money and funds and you know low interest rent loans and um, direct subsidies and all that. Uh, and then, of course, the, the banks um, came out bigger and more powerful and too big to fail than ever. Uh, and then not long after um, they got bailed out, the executives and the greedy bankers, maybe they were just replaced some of the, some of the faces that changed, but essentially the system was in place. And then they start cashing, um, you know, six figure, seven figure bonuses uh, on the backs of the taxpayer. And that was one of the things that, uh, you know, kind of radicalized me. I'm like, wait a second, this, this system's kind of crooked, you know what I mean? And that's why I really liked the uh, Occupy Wall Street uh, movement. And it was pretty organic and spread throughout the country. And uh, I thought big things were going to change. But, uh, yeah. you know, at least, at least um, change the public consciousness, which is important. I, I, I think all I think political. So I think all political movements have a shelf life. Like I think Black Lives Matter was an extremely powerful movement that spread across the country, country and was organic. Um, you know, these things fade out until until the next yeah. one. You know, I think with with, with uh, both of those instances, you have an example of like with Occupy. Uh, I mean, I do think it was it was very powerful. It was very inspirational to me. I think that it did radicalize a lot of people, and there was a lot of value there. 
Um, but then you look at kind of what happened and it got kind of branded by the Democrats. I don't know if you're aware of like the social social media um, uh, organization. Maybe it's an organization, too, but Occupy Democrats. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so they, they take that branding and then they spin it into being like a pro-Democrat. Yeah, they propagandize like, it. Now it's like a, just yeah, a, a big right. like pro-Joe Biden page. Yeah, just like, literally, literally like Joe Biden was like the Wall Street senator. And then for, for yeah. quote-unquote occupied Democrats to be, to be shilling for him is just really sad. And I feel like a similar thing happened with Black Lives Matter where matters – Black Lives Matter where you had a very organic um, uh, protest movement and, and people who were like – righteously angry um and it got kind of like branded and spun and i can't remember it was like that like seven point like here's the policy thing that we're gonna do and it was just like totally branded for the democrats and then now you have like kind of the blm organization um that's very much just kind of like uh, uh uh pipeline into the democratic party and it's really just sad that these social movements keep getting co-opted and 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 pointed in that direction and i i i think that's that people are waking up to it um, I wish that more people would, um, but it is just something. It seems to be something that we're just seeing again and again. The, uh, maybe we can. Maybe it's a good time now to talk about the two-party system in the United States. Um, right. I really don't see much differences. There's some stuff on abortion, and Republicans, um, you know, pretend to be religious to get the evangelical vote in the United States Absolutely. to see if they can get enough of that uh, and pair it with some other segment of the population. Uh, you know, Trump did a good job of that by. Uh, you know, I guess um, his MAGA movement getting getting enough disgruntled um, poor people and working class people that were angry and you know scapegoated it, whether it was the Mexicans or you know whoever. Um, but it seems like the Republicans are able to scapegoat someone and get enough anger, misdirected anger, to win an election. And you know, obviously, the evangelical vote is maybe like thirty percent of the population uh, yeah. or something like that. The United States is one of the most uh, uh, radically religious countries in the world. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I think the Democrats, I mean, the really only differences I see are in rhetoric. Um, I've tweeted about this, you know, before I remember, yeah. uh, this is a silly meme, but I think it sums up it pretty well. Uh, working class people, uh, you know, we need some help. Republicans know, and then you got the Democrats know with a rainbow flag and a black lives matter. And you know that, so it, it's just, yeah. it's just the rhetoric. I mean, Behind the yeah. Hopi Changey rhetoric and the Obama campaign, there was no substance. And I'd like to mention, I mentioned this on a previous podcast, but the Joe Biden pardoning, uh, of course, the Democrats have been talking and, and dangling the carrot uh, about legalization of pot marijuana, which is, you know, uh, hasn't killed anyone that, that we know of. You have to smoke more than your weight in it in like a couple hour period or something like that. I don't think any drugs are good for people, but uh, as far as drugs go, I don't think Obama, I think, or not Obama, uh, marijuana could be much worse. But Obama, or I'm not sorry, Biden, Biden, uh, I guess um, he had like this massive uh what pardon program and getting people that were in federal prisons out of jail and how many people did that help? Exactly zero. Not one yeah. person was taken out of prison. So it was just a political stunt. It was a big propaganda yeah. campaign. Oh, this sounds great. You know, we're going to pardon any marijuana offender in federal prison. Uh, of course, there wasn't one. And of course, there was no actual change to, uh, you know, le- uh, or the, the laws, the statutes where I think even I think I even saw a stat 60 percent of Republican voters. I saw this one point in time want to legalize pot in the United States. Yeah. So n- neither parties do anything about it and uh you kind of go back to that latin america terror campaign and basically to overthrow governments you know you have to come about um you know dark money and the best way to do that is the illegal 
drug ring, drug ring. So you, you claim, you know, this facade is war on drugs, but we want to make sure there always is a war on drugs because we always need this dark money to funnel it to, you know, terror states and uh, authoritarian military uh, <laughs> contras so we can overthrow a slightly left-leaning government wherever in the world, whether it's Latin America, which we've, the United States has terrorized for at least the last century or half a century, right? And uh, now it seems to be the Middle East as we struggle to uh, maintain our hold over the world's oil supply as an oil-based uh, economy, essentially the world still is. Yeah, I don't know if you saw all the all the think pieces uh, criticizing the Taliban for shutting down the uh, opiate opiate industry from uh, opium industry from from Afghanistan. It's like <laughs> I'm no fan of the Taliban, but like, yeah, come on. no, no, like there's a little bit of a mask off moment when right. they're like you know, kind of acknowledging that they were basically running the, the opium industry out of Afghanistan while, while, while the U.S. had its presence there. So, yeah, we had talked about not um, wanting to criticize governments. The only government we can influence is the, the American government. But um, what do you think about, um, you know, governments around the world? I, I'm an anarchist. That's how I identify. Yeah. Uh, I, I've never lived in a government or read about a government that I've liked. I really like the stuff that was going on in the 1930s uh, as the fascist states were getting built up in Europe and there was a uh, anarchist revolution in Spain, uh, but eventually it was crushed. The only time that the Nazis, the communists, and the Western quote-unquote democracies came together in agreement on anything, and that was to stop the anarchists, which were having a real revolution led by um, organized, uh, basically democratically organized communities and workplaces. Uh, one of the slogans was and, no and gods. Spain- What's that? In Spain, you had the Popular Front that was that was the communist, and it was like a united left. It was the communists and the anarchists. So I'm not I'm not in sure what Spain, but I think the communists of Russia, I believe, uh, were I think they came in and intervened. Uh, I believe I don't know. The Soviet, the Soviet Union supported the Popular Front. They, they were okay. like, the Soviet Union and, and Mexico were like the only two forces that supported the Popular Front in in, in Spain. You had you had the 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 fa- like the fascists and the Nazis and. Some of the West would kind of support the both both sides, but they typically kind of supported more more Franco. Um, but my take on Spain is that it was an example of the of of a united left, and something that I would I would like to see. Um, you know, I, I I consider myself a Marxist, but I I really try not to be super divisive among the left. Sometimes I'll take little jabs here and there, but I try not to be that person. Um, because I think ultimately what we need to see is the fall of capitalism um, for, you know, kind of as you were saying earlier, to like save our planet. This is like we are just on such a trajectory of death and destruction. And I think the only way that we can get away from that is to is to seize the reins of power away from the capitalists. And I I think that we can have our disagreements. And I think that there are some dis- substantive disagreements between anarchists and, 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 and Marxists and the different factions within Marxists and the Posadists who think the aliens are coming. Um, but I think ultimately I view the broader left as comrades and anyone that wants to see the fall of capitalism and, and, and power in the hands of the working class is a comrade of mine. So I try not to get too into the weeds um, in terms of like debating anarchists and, and all of that, but Let's get into the weeds. I see the weeds just over the horizon here. Let's get into the weeds a little bit. Um, but yeah, I like ideology. I love political philosophy. I That's not what I read about the anarchist 
Revolution. Uh, I haven't delved too deep into it. I've watched some stuff on it. I've read some stuff on it, but I'm by no means a historian on that period of time. Although I do really like it. I have uh, homage Catalonia. I think George Orwell was in Spain at the time, so I'm looking forward. I haven't read that one yet. But um, they like they like uh, collectivized. Like I want to say, like eighty percent of the economy in Catalonia at the time. Like it was it was it was pretty marked. But I I mean it was it was a, a democratic. It was a it was a democratically organized democratically elected that included communists and anarchists and i do think the anarchists made up a a bigger portion of it um but i think that is an example of a united left and and more of i think that that serves as an example of why we need to kind of set our differences aside more than anything set our differences aside to overthrow capitalism in the current world order that's that's what you think Absolutely. I'm down. I'm down. Now, here's one thing, though. I mean, I'm, I'm not a Marxist. I'm not a communist. I mean, I might be a communist. I've read some stuff on anarcho-communism. As an anarchist, I just oppose. So all socialists are anarchists. Ah, oh, damn it. I always mess this up. All, uh, all anarchists are socialist, but not necessarily are all socialists anarchists. And libertarian right. is, a, is a word... In the United States, it's been propagandized, but yeah, the way I see it, was it like it was a corporate propaganda corporate campaign. Care, yeah, some dystopian term, it's, all, it's always been a leftist term until yeah, yeah. There's a deep history outside of every country in the world on libertarianism, yeah. but the way I see libertarianism and anarchism, it's they mean the same things classically, classically, and basically, um, what socialism, as I see it, what do you, what does socialism mean to you? We can let's define some terms. What does socialism at its core mean to you? And I'll tell you what it means to me. I mean, I see it as uh, basically like collective ownership of the means of production. That's it. And, and there are different degrees of that. You know, I, I think that's I exactly argue, what I see it. I think I, I would argue that you know, even like co-ops, I think are a are a are a sort of a unit of, sure. of socialism, and you could potentially grow that. Um, they're better than corporations for sure, and there's sure, some absolutely. issues. But uh, Mondragon is some stuff I've, I've read. Some stuff on Mondragon, yeah, based in Spain. The bi- I think it's the biggest co-op in the world. Yeah, uh, hundreds of millions, if not a billion dollars or more in assets. Uh, several tens of thousands of employees. It's worldwide. Uh, it's in all different sectors, from service to financials to education. Um, and workers, they the highest paid earner or whatever manager uh, can't earn more than it varies somewhere between three and nine times. I think the average is like five times the lowest paid employee. So the highest paid employee can't earn on average more than five times the lowest paid, which I think is great. Yeah, that's a wage ceiling. Uh, this is just Mondragon, not perfect. Um, I don't know how they divide up the profits, but I think I like worker owned, worker controlled. Yeah, uh, anarcho syndicalist. I think anarcho communism is cool. Basically, I think at the root of uh, anarchism, how do you organize society? Should it be organized around the local community? Uh, maybe some communes and, you know, maybe smaller, um, you know, I think, I think loosely affiliated local communities, you know, loosely connected throughout the world. I think maybe it would have started in Spain and then grew throughout all of Europe if the anarchist revolution was successful there. Uh, I consider myself an anarcho-syndicalist, so that's just like an organized society structured around um, the workplace. But yeah, I think common ownership... Union factions of unions like running society. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know unions. I think, but like, they would collectively owners though. So, yeah, yeah, I want, I want like it's organized like workers, and I like democratic organization and participation. Yeah. And and Mondragon elects managers, which is yeah, you know, it's still managed and it's still within the capitalist system, which is obviously. I mean, is- I, 
I, I certainly support democracy in the workplace. I support cooperatives. I support unions. I think all of that's great. I think one of the reasons that I consider myself a Marxist, well, there's a couple. I think, A, I think that we're that capitalism is not going to go down without a fight and that, and that it's probably going to take some kind of armed uprising. <laughs> uh, maybe not in the U.S. Um, it, it would probably be led somewhere else and the U.S. would probably kind of collapse on its own. Um, but I think all that, empires collapse from within. The biggest yeah. threat to any government is the domestic population. Absolutely, and uh, and I think that's I why mean, the Soviet think, Union collapsed. It didn't collapse from external uh, violence. It collapsed from within. It was at the end. It was. Uh, I know that there was some Western um, yeah antagonism. Some, definitely some Western fuckery. But like I, I, I think mean, it collapsed I from I within. There, there was that that you know you look at like Gorbachev and and some of his kind of obvious mistakes and all of that. But um, what I was going to say is I, I think like the problem with kind of the syndicalist view is that it's, I, I think that it requires a little bit more central planning. Especially when it's, when you talk about things like the environment. So if you have for example, like a, 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 a cooperative that runs a oil, oil rig, um, they're not going to just kind of seed power, um, without without some sort of central central planning saying that like this is this industry is destroying the planet so therefore uh, like cannot and should not exist. So this is where the unstoppable force collides <laughs> yeah. with the uh, immovable object. I cannot allow anyone to come on necessary illusions and and give me words like central planning or a powerful centralized state. I don't like it one bit. <laughs> That's fine. So what would be what would be your argument in terms of how the syndicalists would handle uh, a problem like environmental collapse? We would just smoke a lot of pot, we would <laughs> hold hands, we would <laughs> sing songs, and we would hug trees, my friend. That's Honestly, it. that sounds pretty nice. I don't hate <laughs> that. <laughs> so, okay. Uh First off, I mean, I, I, I really admire Chomsky. He's he's definitely enlightened me and all that kind of stuff. He's written a lot about this, and I was just listening to a podcast uh, talking about some of his ideas. Uh, here's his hot take. Maybe you've heard it before, maybe you haven't, but the Soviet Union uh, was not a socialist state after 1918 when Lenin came in there and immediately tried to dissolve and break down the factory councils and the democratically organized workplaces. Uh, and that's over time, you know, it was Stalin who was one of the harshest uh, dictators and um, biggest criminals in the history of the world, you know. So, the Soviet Union by no means uh, maintained anything that was democratic nor socialist. It was a highly well, powerful state that used its power uh, on its against its own citizens. Uh, but no doubt, they had movements that were good. Like the, it was forced industrialization of a peasant society. They made big gains, including putting you know people on the in space and all that kind of stuff. And there were initiatives for education and healthcare. But I don't think there's any mistaking uh, the government of the Soviet Union was a dictatorship. It was autocratic. It was run by a criminal, a crook, a war criminal. Um, and I think that uh, I wouldn't want to live in that society. Uh, I don't know as much about Cuba, but what I want is to dissolve, at least the long run, dissolve the state. I think hopefully over time they all dissolve and hopefully we don't have nation states and standing armies and all that kind of stuff. How do we get to that point? Your guess is as good as mine. As long as we can come together on a unified leftist front and say yeah, we need to, we need to, you know, we need to 
target capitalism and overthrow it. And, and, and the first step would be to educate people and change the public consciousness. But how to – I don't want to live in, the, in, in any form of system of government. I mean the U.S. is pretty free in many instances. But obviously the way – because the way it treats the world is incredibly violent. But the, the ability for police and military to use violence here on domestic citizens is very limited. We have good – you know, we have free speech rights. So I would say the United States, even though it's maybe by Princeton Review uh, and oligarchy, I would still say it was at least more democratic – uh, in some sense, than the Soviet Union, and I don't think the Soviet Union was in any any sense democratic or socialist. I think, especially near the end. I mean, maybe uh, at the beginning of the revolution, 1917, 1918, and Lenin, and a lot of theorizing, and you know, it was a popular organized movement by normal peasant people and working class people. But I think over time, it kind of evolved to this hyper militarized. I mean, it wasn't much different than Nazi Germany um, with secret police and gulags, concentration camps. But look to the United States, which is we have the secret police. The FBI is the political police. Uh, the CIA is the basically we talked about uh, their escapades abroad, overthrowing governments. So these are all powerful states, whether it's Nazi Germany, the modern United States or the Soviet Union. And I don't want to live in a country with a all powerful government. What I will say, though, is. Because of the corporate power and influence and domination over society, right now, and that's kind of fascism, is kind of the corporate nexus, corporate state nexus comes together. Right now, the only way to use <laughs> uh, our power uh, against these corporations um, in, in that libertarian American sense of the word, some uh, capitalist dystopia, the only way to use use or to protect, protect ourselves essentially from these corporations ruining uh, uh, ruling every aspect of our life is to have a government with regulations like OSHA and um, you know uh, taxes and you know uh, environmental standards even if they're not even if they're in some sense like I saw uh, I think uh, Amazon paid like fifteen grand uh, for an OSHA violation which is ridiculous I think Be- Bezos made like. It's like tens of billions of dollars. Insane. So I think in the short run, I don't think this nation state is going away. I guess I'm kind of wandering around here. But in the short run, I don't think these huge nation states are a good thing. In the short run, I don't think they're going away. And in fact, I think they even serve to protect us from corporate uh, domination control over society. In the long run, whether it's in my lifetime, probably not, or maybe in 100, 200, 500 years from now, I hope they all dissolve in time. And maybe it's a system more like anarcho-communism or narco syndicalism with like loosely uh, loosely connected um, you know pockets of people, whether it's organized around the workplace or the local community, um, loose fetters, you know, keeping people together. Not a big, uh, all powerful centralized state. Certainly not a new world order or a world government. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So that, that I don't know. I guess this this centralized amount, uh, a massive power, and all that kind of stuff scares me. So, what do you think about the short term and the long run and so, revolution? We, we we're both in agreement. We want revolution. We want change. Yeah. How are we going to make that happen? So I can speak with more detail in terms of how Cuba systems work, but in in defense of of the Soviet Union, especially at its founding, you know, it it actually collectivized a number of industries and those and those industries at the local level elected people to I forget what it's called if it's like a it wasn't the ministry but it's to essentially like a parliament um so you Commissar, have is that right I could I couldn't tell you Commissar class I think that's you had you had class. you have these like local kind of industries electing representatives who then elect ministers who then elect the central committee per state and I mean it essentially functioned as a representative democracy um, in that sense and do I think that broke down eventually like yeah 
uh, within the context of World War II and, and, and the Eastern Front and, you know, an, an existential crisis uh, 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 for, the, for the Soviet Union, and I mean, for Europe at, at large, um, you know, followed by the Cold War. And I, I will say, uh, you know, first of all, the Soviet Union was in its infancy, even when it even when it fell, it only existed for, you know, 70 some odd years. Um, and when it fell, it was because they tried, they were saying, we're being too heavy handed. We're going to open up to some more democracy. And when they did, they got sabotaged. The communist parties got repressed. Yeltsin shelled parliament. Um, and there was no option for them to reelect the communists. And so, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think that the, that the Soviet Union is without critique. Uh, you know, obviously it, it, it had its problems. Um, but I do think that there were, certainly at the start of it that it, it was it was designed as socialism with the intent with the intention to be that and it kind of broke down within the context of fucking nazis <laughs> like you know is that what marx like, wanted is the soviet union the kind of society that marx would have wanted I mean, he, 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 talked about, he talked about state and also marx talked about an already industrialized country uh and, and the workers seizing the, the the means of of, of production um, and so when it was applied to the Soviet Union, you, ha you had a, an ag agrarian society that really, so they had to get, you know, they had to fill in the blanks a little bit. Um, and, uh, but he did talk about, you know, state capitalism and, and, and collectivization and all of that. So I think, which you know, is what the United uh, States is too. The United States is a cap state capitalist society. Russia, modern Russia is a state capitalist society. And in a sense, so was the Soviet Union, wasn't it? I disagree that the U.S. is a state capitalist society uh, because because you have private industry uh, that are that are running things versus versus, uh, you know, the state. If, if we had like a, a I think you could argue that like NHS. So look at this here. Like the Pentagon capital. will give four hundred and fifty two billion dollars to private companies in this fiscal year. Uh, and the way I see it, uh, the Pentagon and the military budget uh, it must grow every year. In fact, even after the Soviet Union collapsed, it, it I well, that's think, uh, different than state capitalism because you have private companies that are that are that are generating profit for shareholders. Like no, no, no country has ever been one hundred percent capitalist, and certainly no country has ever been whatever communist uh, in, in either sense of the word. All all economies are mixed, aren't they? I mean, I think state capitalist is almost is is a little bit of a misnomer. Um, it's a capitalist society run by. The government is a central plan, but it's not because the the idea of like a cap, the idea of like the unit of a corporation is like is is a is a corporation that's that's run by like a board and and answers to shareholders versus a state industry is is run by the state and and the profits go toward state programs. Well, sure. So the, on a spectrum, though, on a spectrum, the U.S. is closer to that state capitalist system, and maybe the Soviet Union a little bit. Closer to, but I would, but the, but state capitalism is as as defined by like Marx is a, is a step toward socialism, which I I don't know if I believe in that step stuff. I don't know if we have to go up one step and then two steps. Like I think worker controlling the means of production can start uh, tomorrow. You know, think about a sit down strike. Workers walking into the factories or the schools or the hospitals saying we're going to sit down. And we're not going to work until we get what we want. And that's one step away from saying we don't need bosses. We can do this ourselves. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I, like I said, I mean, I, I certainly support uh, workers seizing the means of production. That's absolutely a I general see. strike. I mean, I know a lot of people on Twitter and social media talk about it, but they, they've been done in history and they've been very effective. 
the only thing stopping us is uh, the public consciousness and and uh, propaganda, uh, deluge of lies and misinformation. That's how the ruling class controls us, thought control, not necessarily force, at least in the United States. I mean, of course, the police are very violent. They're, they're, the, the ability to carry out violence isn't zero, but they're not secret police pounding on our doors and you know throwing us into the gulag or into a concentration camp because of maybe our religious beliefs or our skin color or that kind of stuff. So um, we do have some freedoms here. But, but the um, U.S. did do that. The U.S. did do that. And it was at the same time as the Soviet Union was doing it. That doesn't make it right or wrong, though. Like it I doesn't, think every... but, but the argument that the U.S. is inherently better, I think... I'm is, not. I'm not making that argument. Because think... in the context of World War II, Russia had sure. an active front. They lost 25 million people, while the U.S. was interning people in the U.S. despite having a, front on its, uh, a war front on its borders. I will say, as an anarchist, I've never read about any system of government I've liked. So I want to get fair. rid of all of it. I, do, I, I want to I dismantle it. I don't expect it. to convince you, but that would, <laughs> that would be my, my argument. I'm about to say, I think... I think the domestic population in the United States does have many freedoms, um, but of course, as I try to do on Twitter and X social, whatever it's called now, and on this podcast, I'm trying to over. I mean, my enemy, my enemy, yeah. and my. But I would argue there's freedoms to do things, and there's freedoms from things, and you know, I would sure. love more freedom from things like rent, from yes. things like you know the the forty hour work week, uh, and and I think that. Uh, freedom is a little bit of a mushy word. Um, I do like and, it. And you can apply it different places differently. Sure. Like, no doubt. like I would argue that we don't have the freedom to access healthcare. Sure. Uh, access. Uh, whereas Cubans, access. That's a word yeah. they use though. That's what, that's insurance right. company words. We don't have a healthcare system. I mean, Medicare for all would be, and let's kind of get into a discussion about healthcare. Uh, we broke, both work in the healthcare field. Uh, access to healthcare is one thing, and that's I think a word you know insurance companies made up. But uh, yeah, yeah, healthcare exactly. system, a Medicare for all is would just be that's the single payer, right? But right. that's not necessarily publicly owned healthcare institutions and Which hospitals like an and that sort of thing. I have a problem with a for profit system where hospitals make money on whatever disease and sickness. And then you get paid by, you know, whatever treatment or whatever intervention you use. So you're almost, I mean, you're going to make a lot more money on a open heart you know, coronary artery bypass graft, right? Than you are educating a person uh, in their 30s or 40s on weight loss. You know, I, I think there's a lot more to health than just the absence of disease. So I think the whole structure of our system, and we had alluded to it, I mean, we Cuba pays a fraction toward healthcare per capita than what we do in the United States. We pay at least two times in any other country in the world. Canada, it's four times. And yet our outcomes and are we some don't of the worst yeah, in the we industrialized don't even world. To like 10% of it, well, maybe less than that, but to a, a huge slice of the population. Millions of people. Spending twice as much per capita. It is it's, I think outrageous. it was last time, maybe like 27, 30 million people, something like that, that are, that are going without healthcare in the richest country in world history. It's, it's not acceptable. It is absolutely not acceptable. So, um... Yeah, what, what do you think about, what do you think, how can we change the system, right? I mean, I think, uh, I, I, I don't want a, um, you know, an all-powerful state, but I think in the short run, you know, Medicare for all would be a lot better than w what we have. And then, yeah, eventually, you know, hopefully community-owned enterprises where hospitals and, and medical clinics kind of, and maybe even the model of, of, of Cuba, where these smaller institutions are owned and managed and democratized within the local community, and they're self-governed, you know, but I think the first start would be Medicare for all and maybe some 
um, you know, government-sponsored healthcare institutions, not these privately owned. What do you, what do you think of what do you think of like a for-profit system of healthcare? I mean, it just in, and maybe you can compare it to some countries around the world. Our our system versus maybe how it might look uh, in other countries, whether it's from Cuba or Europe. Have you kind of looked up and studied some of this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, we're about to go to a hard. Let's take a quick break and uh, we'll reset. Uh, we're getting near the end here. I think we're going to turn our focus now uh, to healthcare and a couple other topics as we finish with here. Things got a little heated there, didn't they? Between an anarchist and a, and a Marxist, uh, one one uh, who's a, a big proponent of uh, you know decentralized government and decentralized society, and another one that says, yeah, maybe this centralized stuff isn't so bad, didn't it? Yeah, still my comrade though. <laughs> I still like you. Um. But I think, yeah, I think our our we're on the same side, aren't we? Yeah, that's what I was saying. Is ultimately, yeah. you know, anyone that's trying to overthrow the capitalism that's strangling our our planet is yeah, like right of mine. We and need think, change for sure. We need yeah. change. Uh, and I, I think, think we need to enemy, over, we need to overthrow the capitalist overlords, and then we can talk nuances after that. Yeah. Personally, I mean, I, what think I, it's don't good to, want... I think it's good to philosophize, but yeah, um, I, I think ultimately uh, we we have similar goals. Born to philosophize, but forced to work. That's me. I got a shirt that says that. <laughs> so you know it's true. But I, what I, here's what I don't want, okay? And before we get into some healthcare, I don't want overlords replaced with new overlords. And I don't want to go too deep in this philosophical stuff, but I do think that when the Putin Russian government took over, a lot of the same people uh, that were in charge during the old Soviet Union bought up all the old uh, you know, public entities uh, when it kind of, when when Russia was kind of um, integrated into the Western capitalist system, I guess. Right? Obviously, there's sanctions, and I guess people are trying to take them out of the system or whatever. But the way I see it, uh, when the Soviet Union fell, a lot of the commissar class and the old oligarchs kind of bought up all the public utilities, and now they're the same people in power. Maybe the faces have changed. So all we Some replaced... of them, but really the, the West picked the winners and losers uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, and they really kind of picked who got to be in charge of, of, of the industries, um, collaborating with you know the, the new government of, of, of Yeltsin and, and Putin. Um, and you actually saw the, the, um, the biggest fall in life expectancy after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, and and I, I think even uh, most polling supports that uh, people who lived through both uh, preferred life under the it, Soviet Union. It was worse than ever. Yeah, I, I think there was a lot of problems with the Soviet Union at the end. But when they integrated to the capitalist system, got even worse. Yeah. Um, I don't want I don't want to I don't want to I don't want a single autocrat that rules over me. What I want is real working class representation. And I think yeah. that. Uh, participation is uh, a very important part of democracy. And that's why I kind of like Mondragon. I think that they kind of rotate responsibility and whether that responsibility, again, is organized around the workplace or the local community, you know, maybe everyone gets, um, you know, a year term, you know, Oh, it's your, your turn to go to wherever we're, you know, doing our votes and having our, whatever, our meetings about the, all, all the different, you know, societies. Cause again, I want to get rid of the, the big all powerful government, um, but I, I, I at least, you know, worker controlled enterprises, worker controlled societies and uh, real working class uh, representation and participation in society. That's what I want. Does that sound like something you want too? Yeah, absolutely. 
I think we're on the same page there. Let's go to healthcare. Let's set our targets at healthcare. Again, the United States does not have a functioning healthcare system. It has an international scandal. So what do you think about a for-profit healthcare system, a, a system that profits off of pandemic, uh, one that was funded billions of dollars by the, the taxpayers in, the, in, the, in, in terms of like big pharma, and now they're privatizing the vaccine and um, you know making money from making billions of dollars. I mean, the pandemic was... Uh, some of the best uh, profits the pharmaceutical industries have seen in, in a long time. In fact, this greedflation corporations are doing better than they've ever done. Um, but what do you think about a healthcare system that's structured around profit, a profit, yeah. a profit healthcare system? I mean, I think for-profit healthcare is a not-so-secret scam. I think everybody kind of knows it, um, and I, I think you know there's a number of people, you know, being being a physician and a number of my colleagues. Um, they know that it's a scam and they hate it, but they're like, well, they, they get propagandized when it comes to, you know, single payer healthcare and stuff like that. Personally, yes. I, I mean, I do support a Medicare for all system. I do support, you know, a single payer uh, healthcare system. Just which, start. You know, that's just that's a good start, start, right? That's what I was going to say is that I also support uh, NHS style system in which the, the hospitalized would also, the hospitals would also not be, uh, you know, for-profit corporations. Um, I also support nationalizing the pharmaceutical industry because the way it works right now is you have uh, publicly funded basic research and 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 really kind of the 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 bulk of drug development is done through you know uni- universities or through the um, uh, NIH and through you know these public institutions and then you get these private corporations that that buy the patents and, and develop the drugs. Or they buy the patent and don't develop the drugs. So they kind of choose, you know, what is even brought to development based on what they they see as uh, profitable or not. Um, and then you you also end up in situations like you were saying where where you have, you know, the COVID vaccine, for example, which you know very much relied on technology, public funding that was developed through, through public through the public, right? mRNA, vaccine delivery, all of this stuff was developed over years and years and years and years. And then the industry gets to take it now that it's essentially developed, do the final part of the process, and then rake in billions Which is marketing. The final part exactly. of the process is essentially marketing. So what uh, yeah, patents I mean, do is it gives corporations um, the right to monopolistic pricing. Uh, the United States is maybe the only country in the world where the government is not allowed to use their power and, uh, you know, sway, you know, their influence to negotiate with big pharma and their uh, in terms of their drug pricing. They can do it uh, within the VA system, um, but no other system. And I actually did see that uh, in the VA system where drugs are a lot more reasonable. Uh, but in compared to the rest of the world that actually has, you know, a functioning healthcare system, every other country but the United States um, – Drugs are a lot more reasonable, um, and that's because by law, uh, again, the U.S. government's not allowed to use um, you know their power, and that's that's because of the big pharma lobby. I mean, you know, and that's because of um, them buying buying uh, influence in government, and buying politicians, and that and that sort of thing. But you know, patents are not good for anybody. They're only good for big pharmaceutical companies and their shareholders and the CEOs and executives that are making billions of dollars and profiteering from a pandemic. Um, if we didn't have patents, we would have free flow of information and knowledge, and that would be good for the people because you know places in the, of the global south, like you know Africa or uh, maybe some of these island nations um, that don't have the resources like the United States does. 
uh, in the Pacific or wherever, um, you know, we would be able to say, hey, this is this is what we came up with. Um, you know, this is how you can make a generic drug that's just as effective. If we had those sorts of brief flow of information uh, and we didn't give these corporations these enormous patent rights. And let's go back to, to NAFTA, which is destroyed um, Mexico and Latin America and which is why we have this refugee crisis and why um, you know all these people want to come because NAFTA destroyed it it, it um, basically you know undermined uh, Mexican workers and also put them in competition with US workers but um, what NAFTA is and what some of these trade agreements I say in quotes all they are is investors rights agreements and that kind of goes back to again patent rights and the big pharmaceutical companies uh, you know the only thing that would uh, change. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot that would change if we didn't give them these enormous patent rights. Uh, maybe the big pharmaceutical companies would have a little bit less money, but drugs would be a lot more affordable, and people all over the world would be able to benefit from some of the research being done wherever, whether it's here, whether it's done in Europe, wherever. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I think people kind of memory hold it, but Joe Biden promised to dissolve the uh, COVID vaccine patents and just kind of Never talked about it after he got elected, but he's promised a lot of things of, during uh, his career. Hasn't yeah, he? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but in terms of like, uh, it's almost uh, like he's a known liar at this point, isn't he? You know, given the U.S.'s history in, in Latin America over the past, you know, 150 years or so, um, if not a little longer than that, um, you know, I really think we owe Latin America. Like, it's crazy that that like through the Marshall Plan, the U.S. redeveloped Europe right after World War II, and the Nazis destroyed Europe, right? Funded and, by the and taxpayers. All of those all I'm of those about US taxpayers. Yeah. Uh, and all of those countries got a national health system. They all got essentially universal health care. Israel has one and so does Ukraine, yeah. countries yeah. that are funding. And, 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 and I mean, so, I mean, that goes without saying whatever. But I think that we owe Latin America. We we need to be funding Latin America at that level and just let shelling hey, reparations, maybe. Exactly. Because we're the ones that destroyed Latin America. You know what I mean? And I think, and, let's, and, let's go to the climate crisis. I think the countries, there's a refugee crisis all over the world, world, including in Europe. There's one right now on the borders of the United States, people coming up from Latin America, whether it's uh, economic um, and class warfare, or whether they are climate refugees, or whether they're you know refugees in Iraq, Afghanistan, and now Ukraine. The countries, and it's mainly the countries of the rich West, the countries that are creating the climate crisis should be the country that is welcoming, welcoming, especially at least the the climate refugees, with open arms, saying, you know, we'll take you in. We we are the reason that we are uh, one of the reasons that the, uh, the the climate crisis is happening. And in terms of the military campaigns in the Middle East, all the millions of refugees created in the twenty plus year war on terror, we should have been taking every one of those people in. Like we're we're destroying their homes, we're destroying their way of life. Uh, the Not least we could do is take them in. We're extracting wealth from their com- from their countries, right? And so it's like not you know, only welcoming these these refugees, but we should be we owe those countries back. Yeah, and and, and I think that you know, I mean, I I do support, but we should be bringing in immigrants. But you know, if people, uh, we should also be undoing the damage that we did to those countries to make them more livable places. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that would be, again, yeah, reparations or uh, at least a, definitely a more fair system of trade where all the money flow doesn't go to Western and American banks. But yeah, um, absolutely. So uh, what do you think? So we want change. Our enemy is uh, capitalism for sure. Um, what I see is private ownership. Let, let me talk about this first here, too. This is philosophical. I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, I'm not a Marxist. I'm an anarchist. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a communist, although anarcho-communism interests me. What do you think about property, though? What do you think about property? That seems a very contentious point. Wealth, property. Uh, let, me, let me set this up here, too. So Aristotle had discussed this in terms of democracy. If we had a real democracy in Greece, they talked about this, Aristotle. If there was a real democracy in Greece, um, the, the working class and poor people that have a majority would use their um, voting power uh, to distribute the wealth more equally uh, amongst society. So well, uh, Aristotle came up with a system that we need a welfare state, maybe like the modern welfare states of Europe and Norway, which is, you know, seems like, uh, I guess, the most livable and happy place in the world. Uh, Scandinavia, um, Sweden, Finland, they all have, you know, really good, really socialist, democratic systems. Um, but uh, the United States uh, and James Madison, the framer of the Constitution here, uh, was aware of the same problem here. So obviously there was a landed aristocracy in the United States, uh, rich property owners that were white, not women, and not blacks, not slaves, not Native Americans. Um, and he mentioned the same problem. He was very lucid. Uh, it came to the same problem with designing the American system of democracy, quote-unquote democracy, that Aristotle had mentioned the issues that we might have. If it was a total uh, and actually functioning democracy, um, you know, the people of the United States, uh, you know, the, the working class and the poor, the majority would use their political sway to, you know, re equally more di equally distribute land and property. The United States, one of the most important things as it was founding a nascent empire was property. Um, and it wanted to, you know, found it on whatever it's called, uh, manifest destiny and, you know, expanding from one coast to the other. Um, so what Madison did was designed a system to limit democracy uh, and he wanted to put the power in the Senate that would be more sympathetic um, to the wealth and power of the nation. That's essentially what the, the whole purpose of the Senate is, is to if any legislation progressive gets through the first house, it will stop in the Senate who will be sympathetic, uh, you know, more so to the landed property owners and the wealth of the nation. And the first uh, Supreme Court Justice John Jay said those that own the country ought to govern it. So America, capitalism, property, all that kind of stuff goes together. Um, there was obviously some issues with property and stuff like that and land reform. I think land reform is a good thing. But what do you, what, in generally, what do you think about property? Should there be private property? And how would you start to work to de democ democratize society and maybe dismantle and break up a system of wealth and power where a fraction of 1% own the majority of all the wealth and resources in the world today. Yeah, I think uh, property is something that's uh, another thing that's kind of misunderstood when it comes to Marxism. Uh, Marx distinguishes uh, private property from personal property, uh, where personal proper property would be like my house, my toothbrush. That's like the that's like the big joke. And so you, you still believe like I, I'm, I'm really I'm not. So a there's Marxist. a difference. That's what I'm getting to. There's a difference between personal property and private property. Marxism does not abolish personal property. It abolishes private property. What private property is considered something that you profit off of. Um, so that would be like owning owning a factory or owning or owning being a landlord. Like it, it would be it would be 
the idea of private, the, the word private in, in that context implies something that you're basically profiting off of. Uh, and, and so in, in Marxism, there would be collective ownership of private property, things that are that are profit, profited from versus your personal pro- property being your stuff is not disallowed in Marxism. So you look, look at a place like Cuba. I mean, the housing conditions are not great just because of, I mean, largely because of the embargo and the economic conditions and blah, blah, blah. But 90 plus percent of Cubans own their house. They own the place that they live in, um, even though you have a, you know, uh, socialist government that's, that's trying to move toward Marxism. There's no intention for the government to, like, seize people's personal property. You know, there, there, there was certainly a, a, a land reform moment in Cuba shortly after the revolution where they seize large properties and, like, large, you know, plantations and things like that. And I don't they, like and seizures. They, I don't like that kind of stuff. At least with, at least as it relates to private property. Sure, but as it relates talk, to public. If you want to talk about, if you want to talk about taking power away from uh, uh, private property, uh, you know, uh, these, these profitable businesses away from people, that's what that looks like. Right. I'm, I'm so even that, in like an big oil. syndicalist yeah, uh, like situation, you would have, you know, uh, a, a large plantation that's owned by an individual that would, that. I mean, essentially I be, that would be redistributed to the workers, right? Oh, and so, like it, and, and and so, it sort of depends on how you word it. Like you can you could say that it's like seized, uh, and it's just kind of whether the state is doing that or the workers doing that. But if it's if the effect is the same, right? I, if the state is democratic, then sure. You know, I mean, if it's if it's carried out by the people in a democratic manner, then uh, I'm in favor of it. Of it again, I just don't want an all powerful state. Coming and seizing personal property, you know, my home and that sort of stuff. Uh, and again, this is this is philosophical stuff, um, and we can get into revolution and how it's going to happen. Where that happened in Cuba was when people left, and and it's so funny because people are like, "Oh my God, Fidel Castro took my house," and it's like, "No, you you left. You were you exiled yourself, and you chose to give up your house, and it was then, you know, then it was seized. But but people's personal homes were not taken from them unless they." Defected essentially, yeah, but their per, but their private property was. So I think we see see things very similarly. I'm just very very skeptical uh, of a of a powerful state. And again, I think I think we're we're very close. And and in terms of how do we get from uh, the state system in these nation states to a more democratically democratically organized society without the need of standing armies and stuff is what we want to get to. At least I want to get to for sure. Like in in. I think a lot of people on the, on the Marxist side thought that the Soviet Union was just one step to getting to that whatever, you know, uh, society where actually there was socialist control over the community and, and over the workplace. So I think now we're just trying to get to the, that point in time and get to that place. I do want to not to be too critical of communist countries, uh, although, again, I'm an anarchist and I've never met a government I've liked or a ruler I've liked. I want le- I don't want leaders. I want representatives, working class representatives. So I don't want a leader to come and save us. I don't want a vanguard party to come and save me. But I do want to be critical here of uh, I just looked up some of these numbers, and you know you can look them up yourselves and, and quote me on them and stuff. But uh, it's 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 in the ballpark. I think um, now the, the average home price is three hundred, maybe three hundred thirty thousand in the United States. Uh, and it would take around one hundred and thirty thousand dollars 
uh, income to be able to afford that kind of home in the United States. Uh, all at the same time when it's been a decade or so since minimum wage has been raised and the current minimum wage in the country is $7.25 per hour. Let me go ahead and add that up and see if we get to $130,000. I don't think that's going to quite get there. If you spend no money for like six years, you might get there. So this is before taxes. Well, this is before taxes. That's going to come out to about fifteen grand. That's not going to buy you a home anymore. It's almost ten years to afford like a. So there's obviously major problems uh, in the United States. Uh, Land reform is direly needed here. Um, There's a cost of living crisis going on right now. And I think a lot of it, uh, I think the greed, inflation, and the corporate control, uh, these private tyrannies are really, um, I mean, look at the food industry. Um, You know, there's a handful of corporations that, I think six or so corporations that pretty much own 90% of the food industry. Uh, Oh, what a surprise, you know, costs are rising, uh, you know, for food. And then, you know, I think I go to the crisis in the Ukraine, which again, Ukrainians are victims here. They and, and what the United States wants to do is um, fight this war to weaken their opponent, political and military yeah. opponent in Russia, um, over the dead bodies of the Ukrainians. Ukrainians, Absolutely. and they're going to fight this war to the very last Ukrainian. It's not about morality or defending the Ukrainians. They're u- using these uh, Ukrainians as cannon fodder again to kind of um, weaken their biggest political and military uh, enemy, and that's Russia. But, I 100% agree with and that. And with the sanctions, oil companies or American oil-based companies are profiting, you know, record levels. Uh, and that's because of the embargo in Europe with Russian oil and energy. Uh, the Americans, uh, oil-based companies, are happy to sell their oil and natural gas to Europe and Germany at 10 times what they sell it to uh, Americans. So uh, I think there's a conflict of interest when you have a weapons and defense industry that profiteers from war and uh, when you have oil companies that are, um, you know, profiteering from this resource crisis going on in Europe, this cost of living crisis, uh, there's a lot of problems going on in the world today. I think we're getting near the end of the podcast. Uh, how do we? What, what what sorts of ways and tactics? How how do we how do we um, best take on this system? It's not going to be it's not going to be easy to overthrow. Many have tried and, and have come before us. I do. Uh, I have been reading some Marx. I'm not a Marxist. Uh, I always have to phrase that. But I think he said a lot of great stuff. Um, and, and he had mentioned that ca- capitalism is in constant motion and it's a very resilient system. So if you raise taxes, like, for for example, on a corporation, what, what are they going to do? You know, raise prices. Uh, if you raise wages on the workers, what are they going to do? Raise prices. You know, if you increase environmental standards, what are they going to do? Perhaps transfer jobs overseas or perhaps just transfer that um, waste to a country of the global south with maybe less stringent environmental standards. And we'll just so pollute the we're, go, we're going back to the shape-shifting lizard people then. That's a, <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I, I 100% agree with that. I think this, this system is very entrenched and sometimes I do feel uh, kind of hopeless and nihilistic, but I do find a, a lot of hope um, in, in seeing kind of – how relatively quickly over the past 10 years or so, there seems to be a, a massive growth of a, of a radicalized left um, in, in the U.S. And it, it, that gives me hope to see. I think we're seeing a resurgence of labor organizing that I really love to see. I'm like currently working on trying to unionize my workplace. That's going pretty well. I think it's probably going to happen. Um, so I find a lot of hope in that. I, I, I've 
sort of checked out of electoral politics. I kind of follow it for the horse race stuff and just to kind of be aware of what's going on. Um, but I'm less hopeful in, in, in having a much of a of a route there. I mean, I, I don't hate people who are trying it. And, and you know, I, I think if you can get good policy through, then like, great, I support that. But it's just not my wheelhouse. Um, I try to do, you know, direct action where I can. I try to, you know, I'm I'm a doctor. I try to treat my patients with dignity and respect in the workplace. And I try to, you know, volunteer outside of the workplace to kind of provide my expertise for people who can't afford it. Um, you know, I, I think just the idea of kind of solidarity and organizing uh, outside of electoral politics and just kind of raising our own awareness and awareness of our friends. Cooperation, um, solidarity. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. It's something that gives me a lot of hope. Um, so, you know, I think thing, things are pretty bleak, but uh, I do I do have, you know, there are there are rays of light that will get through, too. So, so this I think is... if we keep if we keep pushing, we, you know, we, we may not succeed <laughs> as much as we <laughs> be negative about it. It's but we have to keep slow. pushing. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that we are in the right and and we're we're the ones fighting for human dignity and sustainability. And we have to keep doing it. I think being a leftist means uh, rooting for the underdog. You know, I think as, as a worker or working working or rooting for worker uh, based movements and popular movements, it's always an uphill battle against concentrated wealth and power. Um, but I think uh, we, we're in a great place. We're in a better society than um you know, we were 100 years ago, um, you know, we waved out slavery um, so uh, across the world. So I think there's, there's a time when people thought that, you know, we couldn't have a world without slavery. I mean, even going back to Aristotle's time, there was slaves and he was, he was very uh, apologetic to the system of slavery. He thought that, you know, it was, it was a system that we had to have and we couldn't overthrow, although he didn't, he thought it was not good, you know. Uh, and uh, that sort of stuff. So I think there's a lot of positive change. I think it's really easy to get overwhelmed and hopeless when you look at all the problems in the world. I think you got to start small, like you were saying. Uh, start at the local community. You know, start in the areas that you can uh, most actively change. Uh, I, I'm trying to change here. Um, people's thought processes, uh, unnecessary illusions, get some new ideas out there, stuff that's not presented on the mainstream media. The way I see it, you know, necessary illusions and discussions like this is um, outside the system. I'm not on CNN. I'm not on Fox News, you know. Um, so I'm outside the system, essentially. Uh, but I think we have to, you know, we have to facilitate this change. Um, and it might be slow, and there's probably going to be a lot more losses than there are wins over the course of time. But, you know, it might be the kind of kind of deal where it's two steps forward, one step back, you know, and we're going to make some gains and some, some improvements. But again, we're going to probably lose a lot of battles along the way. So I got to stay hopeful, uh, but pessimism of intellect, optimism of will, we can't do this. We, you know, the minute we give up is when we're going to get, uh, we're going to get destroyed by the right. There's a, there's a class war going on all the time. The capitalists, they are very, very good at class warfare. They've been doing it for Hundreds of years, or I think, I think to be honest, uh, the story of humanity is a is a story of class uh, class war and working class liberation. You know, liberation theology. That's that's something that arose in Latin America, um, and I think I think um, I think a better world is definitely possible. Uh, but I talked a little bit about outside the system. You know, um, I think we got to do stuff inside the system too. 
I'm not a believer as an anarchist in political parties, so I think there's some good stuff that the you know third party movements and stuff like that are doing in America, but I'm not much of a third party activist. I mean, I think if you're in a swing state, you really have one of two choices and one of those two are going to win. If you're in a safe state, like a, you know, maybe a Democrat state or whatever, and you want to vote third party, great. You know, I think that's a, that's a good thing. If you're in a red state and you want to vote for a third party candidate, probably not going to matter, you know, who you vote for in the swing states, because we're in this messed up electrical election or whatever political system. There's not really much influence we can have. I mean, basically uh, presidential elections come down to, what a couple a couple states a handful of states and a few million votes and that's it so yeah. i think we need to change the political yeah. system inside and out um like i said necessary loosens is outside the system but inside the system we're gonna have to get leftist you know more leftist uh positions of power whether that's the local community the state or in the federal government and i had mentioned um you know we're making a lot of gains like the 40-hour work week that was a long hard struggle i mean there was days I, I'm, I'm from the western pennsylvania area um, you know, the steel mills, uh, I remember the, the homestead riots and the, the Pinkerton police coming down and shooting and massacring the striking workers who were, I think, working six days a week, 12 hour days for a couple bucks, you know, so obviously the labor conditions are a little bit less harsh now. And we're on the backs of those types of people that died before us. Um, but I did see it's, it's not going to pass, but I did see, you know, Bernie Sanders putting through a bill for the 32 hour work week. Uh, yeah. not a four day, 40 hour work week, but a 32 hour work week. I'm sure it's going to fail. Right. But these are good things that are on the consciousness. And I know a lot of people were critical of Bernie Sanders, uh, and AOC. I am at times too, but I think it's good to have someone, you know, in that type of position of power to at least get on the public consciousness, like a 32 hour work week. What worker couldn't be in favor of that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I want to say they're trialing it. I want. I can't remember. There's a city in Spain that I believe is trialing it. I haven't really heard any following I've up. I've seen several up. places yeah. in Europe that yeah. have been doing um, it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I am very supportive of, of moving the Overton window to the left. You know, like I said, electoral politics isn't exactly my project. But, you know, I, I it's, it's incredibly frustrating. And I'm, you know, happy that there are some people doing it. But um, just not, not necessarily for me. But um yeah. I, I want to talk about one thing. I want to stay hopeful, and it's, at times it's hard. You did you did mention on the pre-call, and you did say nihilism. And I've looked at a little bit of this nihilist philosophy too. I think uh, Nietzsche had mentioned it a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, what's nihilism mean to you? So I certainly don't mean it like formal like Nietzscheism uh, nihilism. I just mean like this like sense of hopelessness, um, which I do sometimes fall prey to. Uh, I think uh, part of it is also just as how much I work and just not having a whole lot of time outside of that um, and just kind of feeling like things continue to get worse. But um, like I said, I do, I do, I, I, I throw that term around. I, I am some, I can sometimes be a little bit, you know, blackpilled on my Twitter and can be a little bit negative, but I do see a lot of hope in labor organizing. I do see a lot of hope in this resurgent, uh, resurgent left in the U S it feels like it's growing, not shrinking. Um, and that's just really good to see, uh, you know, and I think I'm I'm mostly, quote unquote, like nihilistic or black pilled when it comes to the environment. It feels like we're already going over the cliff. Um, I, I'm, I'm less hopeful that we're going to be able to, you know, prevent uh, catastrophic cl- climate collapse. Um, don't mean to end on that negative. Uh, you know, <laughs> let, but, let me do a couple but, silly comments. But, you know, I, I do think I do think that. As negative is that is that uh, like 
it's really good for us to be organizing as the left because we're the ones that are seeking solutions to that and seeking to, you know, if nothing else, damage control that. And, and I think that as this trajectory kind of plays out, we're going to be the ones that are most prepared to step into power uh, when shit hits the fan. As it kind of is, but but you know what I mean. Like we're we're organizing, we're we're having these conversations, we're talking about policies to 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 address these things, and and we're the ones doing it. No one else is. Let me let me do some quick rapid fire here. Let's end on a funny note, sure. a silly note. Uh, we only got about yeah seven more minutes, give or take. Then I'll give you the stage if you want to promote anything or uh, maybe a, a, an important issue to you, or even maybe where people can find you. But uh, are we alone in the universe? Do you believe in alien life? Is it somewhere in the universe? Is it somewhere in our galaxy? Is it even in our solar system? I think probably in our galaxy, less likely in our solar system. I don't. I'm not necessarily convinced that they've come to our planet. That was my I next do. question. I am a believer. That was my I next question. Yeah. Do you think do you think traveling back in time, forward in time will be possible? Is it is it possible and will we ever uh, you know, realize this technology and use it? I think and are you from the future? <laughs> I, that'd be cool. I no. Um I think like from our understanding I'm not a physicist, but from my understanding of our understanding of physics um, it's theoretically possible to travel forward in time. And I think the only scenario in which we were able to travel backwards is if in like a multiverse kind of situation, um, which I'm, like I said, not a, not a physicist, but it's fun to think about. Do you believe in the big bang? What was all, what was all about? Was the universe created from nothing? I do believe in the big bang. I don't necessarily have much to elaborate on that, but I think that the, like, mathematical models support the big bang and i think that there may there probably maybe probably was something before that and we just don't know and it'll be impossible for us to know what is time and was there time before the big bang so i think time is it relative yeah i think that's like a i think that we, we is know. it relative is it infinite is it finite what is it I think that it that it is relative, and I think it's probably finite. I like I said, I'm not a physicist. It would be really interesting to talk to a physicist about this. But I do think that time. I got one coming up. Tune in in a couple weeks. Probably starts at the Big Bang, and there probably is uh, an end to it. And it's interesting to think about someone outside of that dimension that could maybe perceive our entire universe and the entire existence of time from start to finish as like one thing. You know what I mean? What's going on at Area 51? Do you think the U.S. government has some crafts there? I've heard some rumors about that. What's going on there? I do think they probably have – well, I think they have their – I think that it's like a military experimental thing. I don't necessarily think they have uh, alien aircrafts there. Maybe. I'm I'm not like a complete denier, but I just would have to see more proof. Um, I think it's – especially now – uh, I think maybe, if anything, at one point they may have, but probably now they don't because Area 51 is so associated with that that it's probably just like an Air Force base that's that that does like weapons research. What's your favorite movie? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Give me a couple. What are you thinking? I do like Quentin Tarantino films. He's a little bit problematic, but I do like I do like his movies. Um, man, when I get put in the spot, like my brain just like clears out. 
I just written some questions down. I just want to go completely rapid fire. I know, just throw you off guard. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I couldn't tell you. What it's about music? Are you into music? Uh, I love the Gorillas. I like. Oh, Daft I Punk. see that. I like uh, Sophie Tucker. I like. I've been kind of into more electronic stuff lately. As a kid, I was more into like classic rock. I played like guitar and piano. I played saxophone, trombone. I, I like music a lot. Um, I like jazz. If where's maybe the coolest place you've ever visited, and what's on your list? Where's somewhere you want to go? I love Cuba so much. I've been a bunch. I'm going back in November. Um, so it's one of my favorite places. I also really love Spain. Again, kind of problematic. Spain has problematic history. Um, but they've mostly they've mostly stopped their uh, colonialism. They are still in Morocco and, you know, a handful of other places. But I do like just like the vibe of Spain. I like the kind of, uh, you know, more kind of relaxed lifestyle, uh, less of like that hustle culture that the U.S. has. And I think ultimately I would love to potentially relocate there. We got less than two minutes. The right, the right just won an election there. So that's um, a little that's bit problematic. scary. But... We got less than two minutes. I'm going to give you an easy one. What's the meaning of life? <laughs> um i don't know i think just to you know try to do right by others and live you know try to be happy and, and make others happy I think. I'm, I'm i'm not like a religious person but i think just I have, a, I have a humanist uh perspective on it so anything you want to talk about anything you want to promote where can people find you uh you can find me on twitter my uh handle is at comrade aux um in terms of things to promote, um, Medicare for all is my big issue here. Uh, I, you know, I think it's kind of uh, receding in terms of support, but um, organizations like Physicians for National Health uh, Program are kind of what I'm involved in. Um, and also just kind of mutual aid, direct action. I just encourage everybody to support your communities where you can and you know, even if, if you can't afford, if you can't afford to help out um, to, you know, if you have any time to try to volunteer. Cabral, comrade, thanks yes. for your time tonight. I really appreciate this this discussion. You were very generous with your time tonight. I know you're a busy guy. Yeah, thank, thank you. It was a fun conversation and I appreciate you uh, reaching out. Have a good night. You too. That's all for this episode of Necessary Illusions. I hope you enjoyed the show. I really enjoyed my discussion tonight with Comrade Cabral on healthcare reform, Cuban relations, capitalism, Marxism, politics, philosophy, revolution, and some silly stuff at the end there too. I want to thank you for listening, and I'd also like to thank my special guest Cabral for a great discussion tonight. Again, I am your host, MC squared, no gods, no masters, I'm out.
Thank you.